Hey, Chris. How are you doing tonight, man? I am not doing well. I mean, I'm well. Physically, I feel better than I've felt in a long time. Oh, good. Spiritually, I am... I'm angry. I'm not sure how righteous the anger is. This has been one of those Amos five days where you flee from a bear only to run into a lion and escape into your house only to be struck by a snake. Like it's that kind of day. (laughs) If I'm not being clear, the bear, the lion and the snake are stupid things. People are saying about Jesus and scripture that I'm having to read either. Okay on social media or via text messages or conversations, those kinds right. of things. It's been that kind of day. Like there's mm-hmm. that line from Bonifer about stupidity is a much, <laughs> that's right. Stupidity is a far greater threat than malice. Evil can be confronted, but stupidity yeah. Stupidity cannot. Cannot. It's it's hopelessly mm-hmm. lost. Yeah, it's it's been that. Yeah. And he and he writes that while in prison, right? I'm pretty sure <laughs> yes, <I think laughs> that's that. what he writes. <laughs> while he's in a Nazi prison camp. <laughs> so yeah. I it's it's I'm okay, but let let the hearers be warned that my blood is up today. Right, so perfect. And let's talk about some, <laughs> some scripture, <laughs> and some su- such cheerful texts. Perfect <laughs> right? some mood I'm in. Yeah, uh, let me just mention the texts. We're of course looking at the Revised Common Lectionary. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, we're looking at Jeremiah twenty-three, Psalm eighty-two, Hebrews eleven into twelve, and then Luke chapter twelve. So what if we uh, begin with the psalm? Yeah, I I like that. I want to say first, you've got this kind of stunning line in the middle of the psalm, or I think it's actually toward the end. Why don't don't you read it before before we move into it? Read the the whole psalm. It's not that long, and I think it'd be good for people to hear it. Okay. God takes his stand in the council of heaven. He gives judgment in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show favor to the wicked? Save the weak and the orphan. Defend the humble and needy. Rescue the weak and the poor. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. They do not know, neither do they understand. They go about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now I say to you, you are gods, and all of you children of the Most High. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, and rule the earth, for you shall take all nations for your own. Yeah. So obviously the line I was referencing is, you are gods, Mm -hmm. which Jesus quotes, John 10, does not your law say you are gods? And I, I think this psalm can be read in both directions, us speaking to God and God speaking to us. We'll say more about that in a moment. But we've talked in the past about God amongst the gods, and we've talked about how that's related cosmologically to angels and to what Paul calls principalities and powers, which are the forces that make the world work the way it does. So that the way things happen under the sun, in the language of Ecclesiastes, happen the way that they do. Because there are forces, principalities, powers, prince, uh, princes of the air, as Paul will talk about it, elemental spirits. These are ways of talking not just about the angelic and the demonic, but about those forces that shape our lives so completely and so forcefully that we can only see their effects. Right? But here in this psalm, when we're talking about God amongst the gods, it's pretty clear that we're not talking about angels and demons and even less historical forces. We're talking about human beings. God is God amongst us, and we are meant to be gods. So, in what sense, then, are we gods? Right, As Jesus says, you are gods. I think 
the point is simply that God has made us to be his own, to be one with him, to be equals with him. Now, God is God in a way we are not, but what he is by nature, we are becoming by grace. We're called to share in everything that is his in ways that are true to what we are as creatures. So the, what you, you know, this is what it means in the language of the New Testament to be partakers of the divine nature. We are human beings who are partaking of God's nature. Jesus, of course, is the one who is fully human and fully divine in, in this, the deepest of all possible communions. And he's included us in that life. And we are joint heirs with him, not just heirs, but joint heirs with him. So that God means us to share in full equality. In George MacDonald's language, in the kingdom of God, all are kings who serve all. And that's what we're called to. But that is inseparable from responsibility. And you and I have talked a lot about this. That to be a Christian, to be a human being, is to be someone who is responsible to do the works of God in the world. I was giving a talk. I don't know, a week or so ago, in a place I'd never been before. I'm not sure I'll be there again. But I ended by making this point that so many of us live in frustration because we're waiting on God to do for us what God is waiting on us to do for our neighbors. We're, we're standing passively in anticipation of a God who will swoop in and rescue us and fix everything spoon feed us and that's not who we're called to be i mean there are times in our lives in which that's exactly what we need and that's exactly who god is for us but what we're called to is a kind of responsibility and where we start to do for others exactly what god has called us to do which is bring his love and light and goodness and peace and justice to bear for them so I, that's where i would start with the song Yeah, I mean, I, I think something I'm interested in is just this, if, if we can come back, I know you said we could come back to this, but this kind of who's speaking, right? So often in the yep. Psalms, there's a kind of, it's difficult to tell yep. who's speaking to who. I don't know if this one's quite as difficult as, as some. I mean, because I guess how I want to read it is the kind of longer passage from verse 2 into or through verse seven is God sort of speaking to us, I guess, to the hearers. How long will you mm -hmm. judge unjustly? Yep. And then the psalmist ending kind of calling for God's judgment, right? Yeah. You rise. Oh God. Yeah. Rule and, and rule the earth. For yeah. you shall take the nations, take all nations. Yes, I definitely think, yeah, I think that's right. I think that this is a psalm about us, about us as gods, sons and daughters of gods who are meant, sons and daughters of God, who are meant to enjoy the life of God, but also to bear the responsibility to God, to suffer the sufferings of God. Mm -hmm. And And therefore, this psalm can and should be read both ways. There's a sense in which, on behalf of those who are suffering, we should be lamenting and protesting. God, how long are you going to wait before you act on the behalf of the weak, yeah. on the behalf of the, the suffering, those the God forsaken? But ultimately, yes, I think it is God saying to us, no, you're the ones who are privileging the powerful, not me. You're the ones who are protecting the wicked, not me. And you're protecting the wicked precisely because you are not caring for those who are suffering because of that wickedness. And so, yeah, I, th I think you're right to see it, that it can be read both ways. I think it should be read both ways, but that ultimately we are the ones answerable, right? God, God is faithful. The question is, are we going to be? You know? mm -hmm. Speaking of that, Jordan Wood, who has become a friend and has written this excellent book on Maximus the Confessor, as well as other stuff. He's, he pointed out to me, I don't know if it's in writing or not. It probably is, but I'm sorry, I don't know 
where to send you for it. But in one of our conversations, he pointed out to me that that's a way of hearing what Jesus is saying on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that he's speaking to us. We are the gods mm-hmm. who have forsaken God. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, I realized that you have these this very same theme that shows up all the way through the Christian tradition. Two examples that jump to mind. One is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who talks about the the question he he write in prison he writes a, a series of poems and one of them is that the righteous are those who go to God in God's time of need. Right? To be just is mm-hmm. someone who goes to God when God is in need. Again, to my point about we are doing for others what we have been waiting on God to do for us. And then Eddie Hillisum, who's I think such a remarkable voice from that same time actually. She she yeah. dies us too she has this journal that's essentially a prayer which she said a journal entry that is a includes a prayer and she says you know god i've realized you cannot help us but we can help you and there's this you know out of context without deep awareness that can sound blasphemous like what do you mean God cannot help us, we can help God. But in context, and once you have a sense of what it is human beings are called to, you realize that what Bonifer and Hillisum are saying in, in the context of World War II, Germany, and the Shoah, and what the psalmist is saying here, thousands of years removed, is God is waiting for human beings to be human. God is waiting for humans to be human in the way that God is human. And that's all of history is that waiting. Like all of history is that God making room and time and space for us to be responsible, for us to be gods in that sense. Mm-hmm. And we, we have, and again and again and again, forsaken God, not just Jesus on the cross, but the thieves beside him and the soldiers killing him and the Pharisees and scribes cheering it on and the, his mother and disciples grieving it, like all of them are our responsibility. And I think we have to hear that to hear any of these texts rightly when we start to talk about the judgment of God. Well, I mean, saying that does strike me because it makes me think about God waiting and us then forsaking God in, in that kind of way um, makes me think about anger and the anger of God. And in this, in our gospel passage today, right, it is a passage where Jesus sounds to me, to my ear, especially angry, right? I came to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Mm-hmm. I mean, this does not sound like a gentle word. And then he goes on to talk about the, um, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Yeah. I mean, how, how are we to hear that? Well, I think it's hard for us to hear it because we know we don't have a feel anymore for righteous anger. I think by and large, and again, I'm painting with really broad strokes here, and I should should be careful because I know many, many, many of us have grown up in homes and in churches where there's been unholy anger. And many of us, probably not as many, but at least some of us have grown up in spaces where there's been a lack of holy anger. So I think both are damaging. If I'm angry in ways that are unholy, if I'm angry in ways that are vindictive and malicious, abusive, then I do a certain kind of damage. If I fail to be angry when I should be angry, it's a, you know, one in a sense is is hot and is consuming, devours. The other one is cold and freezes and shatters. But both are devastating for the soul, the mind, the heart of a human being, of bodies of human beings. Like we're, anger 
in this fallen world, there are times in which the only holy response is one that at least includes anger. That the that not that not anger alone, and not that the anger itself is going to bring about anything good, but there must be an element of anger in it, for it to be a genuine human response to to what is taking place, and I think many of us precisely because what we've seen is either that raging fury that is unholy anger, abusive anger, the wrath of man, or we've seen a kind of moral indifference, a, a, a sense of superiority that those are other people's troubles. I don't have to be bothered by them. I think it's hard for us to hear these. I mean, the scripture is filled with talk about the anger of God. And I think it's really hard for us to hear it rightly because of all this, all the ways in which our, our hearing has been damaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like I think, and you know, we talked about this last week, but it's hard for us to hear talk about fear, the fear of God because right. our hearing has been damaged. Yeah. I, I was just about to say, I mean, one of the kind of what's, kicked off that conversation with us was this quote from Maximus in which he talks about two kinds of fear, essentially this fear of punishment and fear of otherness, both in relation to, to God. And I was kind of asking you about that because what I was hearing at first from Maximus was this fear of punishment was this kind of, it's good to feel it's good to be terrorized a bit. Yeah by God. Yeah. Which which isn't what he's saying, but that's no. that's what I was hearing. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what I mean. Like we're we if we're not careful, we associate all anger with this unjust abusive wrath, this out of control venting of of our spleen, right? Rage. And then we we wonder if that if God isn't doesn't have that in spades, so to speak. You know, God has that to, to the nth degree, right? And and, a, and then justified as well. He's God, so he's always in the right to have that kind of anger. But of course, there's nothing like that in God. God is not carried away by his anger. Mm-hmm. That when we talk about the anger of God, we are talking about the ways in which God's being, which is always fully active is set against everything that destroys us and destroys our neighbor and destroys this creation. God is always working. The fire of God's love is always working against everything that is false, everything that's corrupt, everything that's deceitful and treacherous, everything that's oppressive and abusive. And we therefore need to recognize that that is the anger of God set against Exploiting the poor, set against oppressing those who have no voice, set against taking advantage of other people who are at our mercy, and so on and so on and so on, right? That God is a God who keeps covenant precisely so that he can care for those of us who are most in need. And as we are called to be sons and daughters of God, to be joint heirs, to be co-regents, be God's equals in responsibility for this world God has made us to rule and to reign in. God will be angry with us in that sense whenever we're violating it, right? Whenever we are living in ways that violate the integrity of our humanity and the humanity of people around us, violate the integrity of the creation itself in any way, God is angry with us. Not in the sense that, you know, he's flying off the handle, lashing out, you know, he's not an alcoholic father ever in any sense right but he is just and his being fully realized always in his action is for good i mean to say that god is always doing good is to say all that god is doing is against what's not good you can't talk about the justice of god without talking about the ways in which that justice sets itself against injustice and anger in us needs to reflect and embody that. And this is why Jesus himself is angry. 
I mean, he, his anger is a revelation of the justice of God that's at work in him and through him for the sake of, of the redemption, the setting right of all things. So I think we've got to recover a way of cherishing anger and cherishing, you know, blessed are the angry. Blessed are the angry who can be anger, angry with God. And I mean that in the sense of wrestling with God in prayer as the, in the way this psalm may be read. Like, God, how long before you do mm -hmm. justice? And those who can be angry with God in the sense that they're angry as God is angry. So we, we need a recovery of that. We need a recovery of judgment, a, a hunger and thirst for justice that will be inseparable from anger at injustice. And that, of course, is inseparable from mercy and compassion for those who are suffering the injustices. But I think we're not going to become the men and women we're called to be, take the responsibility we're meant to take, enjoy the intimacy we're meant to enjoy, if we don't have a sense of holy anger and a desperation for the judgment of God to come. Mm. So I, let me ask you then, I mean, because I guess that's part of what, that's part of this judgment, right? I mean, that Jesus is, is, is talking about, I'm yes. bringing fire to the earth and it is division. So if this is something that we should, we should want. I mean, I guess part of what's assumed there is that because ultimately it's good for us. Yes. Yeah. So how? I mean, how how is how's the judgment or in this passage, let's just say, yeah. how is this division good? I mean, that that goes against all my sensibilities, right? <laughs> right. No, I, that's right. And I think that what I what I'm trying to say is I think it goes against so for some of us, these kinds of texts, these texts of, of wrath and judgment and fear and threat, they run with the grain of our sensibilities. And that's not necessarily good because there, there may very well be in us an appetite for destruction, the destruction of those we want to see destroyed so that we're fantasizing about the judgment of God falling on those people. And so if we're reading these passages and those and the flow of the text is too smooth, if that just seems quite obviously right and good, something is wrong. We're not reading it Christologically. We're not reading it as people who've been shaped by the cross. But if these kinds of passages only cut against the grain, if they make no sense to us, if they seem unworthy of God, then we're, we're just as out of tune and out of step. So what should happen is that it should both there should be a way in which it does make a kind of sense and doesn't right so it's both going with the grain and against the grain as we're reading and that is to say yes of course God is angry in the way that only God can be angry he is against injustice and he's not going to stand idly by while we abuse and exploit those who are in need but his anger is not like the anger of a drunk father. Right? So I think, you know, again, with the grain and against the grain. But specifically to the division, it's not just that he says, I will divide. He specifically says he will divide households. Right. right? Fathers, sons, sons against fathers, mothers against daughters, and daughters against mothers, mothers-in-law against her daughters-in-law, against their daughters-in-law daughters-in-law against their mothers-in-law. So this is very much his judgment is coming not just not between nations but into households. And I think that's a, a really vital point. He's not coming to divide along lines we've already drawn. Right? That his his division is not well of course he's separating between the just and the unjust. No, we've already drawn that line. Mm -hmm. Or we think we have. It, you know, one of the things that I, th I think is so striking about Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, is that the sheep and the goats are not gathered into groupings they made for themselves. Right? It doesn't say that the Lord shows up 
and here are the sheep and there are the goats already separated. Mm-hmm. He divides them. Yeah. So they are sheep and goats, but they're not grouped already. Like only he can divide them. And I think part of what's being said here in this passage is that the division that he can bring is, is the division that is, is gracious and he is the only one who can bring it because we would divide and have divided along other lines. Right? We, we build households by dividing ourselves from others. Right. He builds us by letting that division run right through our household, right, right through those people who are mine. So this, this is why, the, you know, the culture wars are, are so out of step with the spirit because the culture wars are always fought along lines we've drawn. Yeah. Right. The, the, the sword of the Lord doesn't, doesn't strike according to the plans of, of battle we've drawn up. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that's a, a vital, a vital part of this passage, right? That the, and, and one more note about it. It's another reminder of this is the way Jesus is saving us from where the destruction is most potent. Because the fact of the matter is, and this is, I think, always been true and probably inevitably always will be true, that the deepest wounds in our lives come from those who are closest to us. So the household is precisely not, not city hall, not the castle, not even the church or the cathedral. The most dangerous place to be human is your household. And because that's where you're most vulnerable, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's where, you know, with all the ways in which we're trying to come to terms with public injustices, it, it's familial ones, familiar wounds that, you know, are at the heart of all of this. And, and so I think that's another reason that the division begins there. Hmm. and it's a division then i mean in in how you're talking about it because it's like i'm hearing two things that and just let me know if this is right it's both uh allowing the divisions that we have to take place or is it and or is it a division that he is bringing well, I I, th- I think it's both. I think there's a division we're allowing, and mm-hmm. his division is coming to set us free from the things that brought about the divisions we brought about. So there's a judgment of God against us mm-hmm. that's always only really for us. Right. God is, there is a judgment of God in our lives. There is a cutting. You know, one way of putting this is the truth hurts, yep. but it hurts in order to heal what has been harmed, right, to... It hurts because we have been harmed. And so I do think there is a, a cutting. The, the, the word of God is, is live and it cuts. But it only cuts to clean. It only cuts to, to save. And it is precisely what's delivering us from the violence we're doing to, to one another. So one way of putting this I mean, and we can use different words for it. So I don't, I don't, I don't mean this in a pedantic sense, but just to try to get at a distinction. I think God is forceful with us, but God is never violent in this sense. God never violates us. God never does anything that violates the integrity of our being or mm. violates the integrity of any creature. God does not do violence at all to anyone ever. God is forceful. Jesus, Peter, get behind me, Satan. That that exchange between Jesus and Peter. I mean, that's forceful. Yeah. But it doesn't violate Peter. It separates him from the lie that he's holding as if, as if it were his own belief. So I think that's we need we however we name it, we need that distinction between the forceful act of God that exposes how 
Satan is at work in us, but never demeans us, never humiliates us, never violates our humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's a crucial difference between his anger and our anger, between his judgment and our judgment. And then at, at the end then of this passage, his calling the people hypocrites because they can read read the appearance of the earth and the sky. Yeah. But they don't know how to interpret the present time. What's yeah. the significance there of that? Well, I mean, that? yeah, that connects to the Jeremiah passage, I think. But it's, I think what he's pointing to here is there are some things you see so clearly. Mm-hmm. But the things that matter most, you're you're utterly in the dark about. You know, yeah. back to the the passage in the psalm, like they're going about in darkness, they're stumbling about in darkness because they do not understand. And I I, I don't think it's well, I know it isn't like incidental that he's pointing to their ability to kind of read the weather. Like he's what he's essentially saying is, you can you can read the patterns of the the weather but you have no sense of what the time is you don't know how to recognize the moment so you're living by technique you're living by a a certain technique for recognizing patterns so that you can predict outcomes and can be in control so in the in the hebrews passage hebrews 12 talks about laying aside the sin that entangles or the yeah. sin that clings so closely to us. Right. I think what Jesus is cutting away from us, what Jesus is dividing us from, is that sin that it, that we get entangled with. What is that sin? What is the sin that entangles us? And I think the sin that entangles us is the sin of control, of, hmm. tr- of idolatry, trying to get a handle on our lives so that we through this technique, whatever it is, whether that's an economic technique or a relational technique or a spiritual technique, whatever it is, we're trying to find ways of managing reality so that we get out of life alive and that our power remains unchallenged. You know, back in the Psalm, he says, you are gods, but you will die like mortals and fall like any prince, which is letting us know, yes, you are called to be and are indeed children of the Most High. But you're mortal, you're going to die, and your powers will fall. Every prince, every king, every queen will come down. Every kingdom will will collapse. God alone is immortal, and God alone, only God's power is just, and therefore only God's power is sustainable. And so I think what the sin is that is entangling us or clinging to us is the aspiration to control our futures, to control not maybe not only our futures, but the futures of the people around us, depending on how ambitious we are. And Jesus has come to divide us from that, right? So if you read that, read the gospel text that way, I mean, why is the household divided? I think about how much damage we do fathers to sons trying to force them into a certain future. Mm-hmm. They're trying to demand that they come in line with a vision of what the family is. But, and this is why I think Jesus is so set against what we would think of as family values. Because that that is the, the site of the nuclear explosion, right? That's the place where we've been irradiated. Many of us, not all of us, I mean, thank God for those of us who've had parents who've loved us and cared for us, but even even in the best of circumstances, we're wounded in the house of our friends, in the house of our family. But most of us do not grow up in the best of circumstances. And it's, I think, absolutely vital to see that that desire to get control of things is not only what led to our being wounded, but is our foolish attempt to get control of our lives because we're wounded. Mm-hmm. Right? So like the, yeah, I mean, I think you, you can see the point. And Jesus is coming, therefore, 
against all of that. Against, of course, I mean, those who've wronged us are going to answer for it, and those we've wronged are, are going to see that we answer for it. But there is a way in which Jesus is also coming against the lies we've internalized against, yeah, the sin that is driving us to try to control what is not ours to control. Maybe then, maybe this is a good time then to make our way to the Jeremiah text. Okay, yeah. And we have more... Um, more questions. <laughs> yes. Questions from God, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Um, why don't you read the Jeremiah passage and just kind okay. of emphasize emphasize how often a question get at, gets asked. All right. Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will the hearts of the prophets ever turn back, those who prophesy lies and those who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? They plan to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, just as their ancestors forgot my name for Baal. Let the, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Yeah, as you said, question after question after question. And of course, we get a question in the gospel too. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Right. You have all these techniques for identifying weather patterns. How do you not know? Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So what, what do you make of that? I mean, just what's your first impression of the fact that we're getting wave after wave of question? Um, I mean, it feels like, I mean, a, a lot of it feels like you should, you should know this, right? Yeah. This kind of, am I a God nearby and not a God far off? Who can hide? I mean, these are, you know, so that's part of it. Part of what strikes me is it feels like, yeah, well, we're, we're not meant to actually offer up an answer. We, we know, we should know the answer to this. Um, You know, part of it, I guess, is what I hear is, you know, what you were saying, um, what you were saying earlier, that kind of being angry with the Lord. Yeah. Right. That we're, we're kind of being taken up into that. Right. This kind of naming of the sins, naming of, of what's going on, and then being taken up into God's you know, how long will the heart of the prophets ever turn back? When, when will this end? Which is, or maybe should be the cry of the people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when will this end? Yep. We've forgotten. We've forgotten our own names. They plan to make my people forget my name. Forget my name, rather, not our own names. Forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, just as their ancestors did. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think we're there's so much about this, right, that is disorienting for us because we live in a world in which dreaming is, is a good act. Like to dream, you know, think, think of MLK, I have a dream, right? Or yeah, yeah. Like Disney. But I, in either either of those scenarios, like to dream is to imagine a better future. Mm -hmm. But I think we re to hear what Jeremiah is saying. We need to distinguish between imagining and fantasizing. 
and I, I was talking with with Mark about this, uh, uh, Mark Sharona about this a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about this difference between fantasy and imagination because he had he had been doing some work on imagination, and I said I think we can fantasize revenge, and we can only fantasize about it, but we have to imagine reconciliation. And what's happening here in Jeremiah is these are dreams of fantasy. They're not dreams of imagination. So when MLK has a dream about a future in which his children are judged because of their character, the content of their character, not the color of their skin, like he's imagining a just future, a more just future. Mm -hmm. He's not fantasizing about revenge on the people who mistreated his ancestors. He's imagining a future in which the wrongs done to his ancestors and to himself and his own people in his own time are, are set right by his children. Right. So like that, that fundamental, like uh, imagination is to fantasy in that sense. Like the good is to evil, evil, just a privation of the good and mm -hmm. an emptying out or a paling an evacuating of the good. And fantasy then is a refusal to imagine a better future by fantasizing a future that has no no truth in it, no goodness in it, no beauty in it. And I think that is what Jeremiah is criticizing here, that there are always false prophets who are happy to feed us our fantasies or happy to feed on our fantasies. Mm -hmm. And... In, the more troubled the time is, the more false prophets there are, because the more fantasies there are. Right? The more the more troubled the moment is, the more fantasies bubble up, and the more those fantasies bubble up, the more there are false prophets to trade on them. And we're, I mean, we're we're living in that moment right now. Like, jeez, yeah, absolutely, this moment right now, right here, that's what we're living in. We're living in a time in which fantasies are running wild and more and more prophets are fa are fantasizing those fantasies with us and calling it the word of the Lord. And I think the reason God is asking these questions, why do you not know how to, ju to judge or discern the present time? Am I a God nearby and not a God far off? Who can hide? Well, the reason God is smacking us with these questions is that we are asleep. We're fantasizing. This is not a holy dream, right? Like there, this is not the dream we should be dreaming. I mean, this mm -hmm. is, this is the fantasy of a sickened mind, a fevered mind. And God is trying to wake us up from it. I think that, I think that's the, the point of the questioning. Like, don't you hear yourselves? Do you not hear what you're, what you're saying? And that these, these fantasies make us forget God. Make us forget who, I mean, we're still, I mean, you know, the irony is, if you, if you read the text closely, right, he says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name. They prophesy lies in my name, Right? Then he says, they, these prophets who prophesy lies in his name, they plan to make my people forget their my name by their dreams. Yeah. So notice what he's pointing out, right? That's that amazing. the people who claim the name of God for their fantasies mm -hmm. actually right. intend to make you forget God and leave you with their fantasies. Mm -hmm. So like the more, the quicker they are to appeal to the name of God in covering for their fantasy or yours that they're giving back to you the surer you can be they want you to forget god oh and, and this i mean to yeah. me that is it's bone chilling like it that recognition is. that we would think of a false prophet as someone who wanted us to forget god by not bringing god's name up but what jeremiah no. says because god shows him 
is that no, 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 the people that make you forget God are the people who use God's name all the time. Yeah. We've got a lot of people talking about Jesus and our fantasies right now. Jesus is, absolutely. Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill our fantasies. And that can be, you know, we don't call them fantasies, but we call them dreams, right? We call them desires. We call them hopes. Yeah. But they're not true imaginations, Holy Spirit-fired imaginations for a just future. They're fantasies about revenge. They're fantasies about power that doesn't end. They're fantasies about lives that never face death. Mm-hmm. And that those illusions have to be, have to be broken. I, I think that's what Jeremiah is, is challenging. I mean, and we have to challenge it as well and recognize that, you know, we're not, we're not fully awake ourselves. Right. I mean, it, we may, even if we are stirring and starting to get a, a sense that not everything we were thinking was in fact, right. Not everything we were feeling was in fact, right. Doesn't. Yeah. We're, we're not, we're not yet ready to stand and be angry with God in the right way fully. So I didn't, I've, go, I've go. got to ask, um, yeah. as you're, ta- I know our people listening will know that they won't know this, but as you're talking, you're occasionally waving this book in front of me, in front of the camera with this yeah. pretty wild book cover, it's book cover. Incredible. What What's going on with this? Okay. So this is Daniel Berrigan's, Jeremiah, the world, the wound of God. Okay. And it's tremendous, tremendous book. It took me forever to get my hands on it. I've known about it for a long time and I couldn't find a copy. I finally did. And I'm working on the Jeremiah chapter in the new book. So I, I happened to be reading it even before I got to the text for this week. But listen to what he says, what Berrigan says. Uh, about Jeremiah 23, the reading for this week. And in the middle of it, he's going to quote Wendell Berry. And you'll see how this relates to the reason that I keep waving it is because of the connections to what I was saying a moment ago about technique, like that ability to, to read weather patterns, but not being able to see the movement of the spirit. Mm-hmm. So this, this is what he, he titles the section dreams and their inconsequentiality dreams and their inconsequentiality. We have a strong indication in this passage of the biblical bias against magic, considered commonly as the recourse and refuge of dwellers of on earth, dwellers on earth. Today one thinks in this regard of the universal absolute reliance on technique to set things right. The use of technique to set things right. Wendell Berry writes of this, and now I'm quoting Wendell Berry, he is, and I'm reading it. Always the assumption is that we can set first, we can first set demons at large, and then somehow become smart enough to control them. This is not childishness. It is not even human weakness. It is a kind of idiocy. There's the Bonifer line again. <laughs> but perhaps we will not cope with it and save ourselves until we re- regain the sense to call it evil. Right, so setting these powers free that we don't have the ability to control and thinking we'll figure it out as it comes, right? That's evil. The trouble is, as in our conscious moments, we all know that we are terrifyingly ignorant. The most learned of us are ignorant. The acquisition of knowledge always involves the revelation of ignorance. Almost is the revelation of ignorance. Our knowledge of the world instructs us, first of all, that the world is greater than our knowledge of it. And so Barry's emphasis is on the, the world is more than we know. And what we know, if it is truly known, makes us startlingly aware of how little we know. But then Berrigan takes up that to say, in contrast to the technicians are the Jeremiah's, mindful Vigilant, alert, great hearkeners of the word, aware of realities hidden from dreamers, captivated by the supposed power and beneficence of technique. Mm. 
aware of realities hidden from dreamers, captivated by the supposed power and beneficence of technique. And I think, to me, you know, what Berrigan is saying, what Berrigan is saying in Bear, reading in Wendell Berry, what both of them are saying about Jeremiah, I mean, it's true again right here and right now. Like, we are, we are people grasping for power, desperate for any handles on our lives that we can use to bend the future, to bend the present toward the future we want. I mean, that's, I think, what is what are the culture wars if the, if not that fight and how much of our lives what we what we should be calling worship what is happening in our churches instead of worship what's happening in our conversations instead of you know what wesley would call holy conversation how much of it is eaten up with just the fight over which technique is going to guarantee the outcomes that we think we want Right. And the word of the Lord comes against all that. Like God is a God who comes to shatter our techniques. And I think, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hmm. I guess. Well, I mean, let me let me just ask you then. I mean, and and maybe that is that last line really is the answer. I was going to ask, you know, what's what's the good news? But I guess, I mean, the shattering of our techniques is good news. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's that's precisely right. Like it's every Sunday, every morning and evening in our prayer closets, every time we open Scripture, every time we have a conversation, when we stand up there should be idols scattered all around our feet. Right? I mean, that's, that's what the truth does. It's shattering the, the lies, right? It's, it's cutting away from us that clinging sin that mm -hmm. it's burning that away from us precisely. So we can be well precisely so that we can live in joy and peace Precisely, precisely so there can be justice. I mean, this is this is not that God is angry because he needs to get the anger out. Right. God is angry so that there can be joy and peace. Like goodness can dwell amongst us, right? So that instead of just living in our household patterns, living the way our family has always lived, we can love one another as we are loved in God. Right. I mean that it's not that God is against the family. He's against what we've made of the family. He's against right. our values and, and so on down the line. Mm -hmm. Right. I will, I will say this too, though, before we go, and I know we're running close to the end here, but I am struck by this. The last question Jeremiah asks or God asks in Jeremiah, what has straw in common with wheat? Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? And I know we've, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but I want to come back to, I think it's really important that he asks these questions that he's not make. I mean, they, they are rhetorical in a sense, mm -hmm. but when Jesus says, why do you not know how? How is it that you don't know how to recognize this moment for what it is? And God saying, am I a God who's nearby and not a God who's far off? Like these, these questions, we need, to, we need to stop and weigh, consider deeply, why is God asking us this? Mm -hmm. And I think, well, at least one as I've tried to do that, try to think about this, why is God asking it? Is, to, is a way of reminding us that his hammer is not like our hammer and his fire is not like our fire. Right? And there is a hammer of God. Origin in his comment, Origin has a series of homilies 
some of which are lost, many of which are lost, but we do have some of them, thanks to Jerome. And he has a sermon, not on this passage, but on a later passage about the hammer that God shatters, breaks and shatters. And he talks about the devil as the hammer that God breaks in the wilderness and then shatters on the cross. And so there's a way in which, like if you read that later passage in Jeremiah over against this one, you get a real sense that the shattering that's happening is different. When God does the shattering, we're made whole. Mm-hmm. Right? So like in Lamentations, which is, you know, one of, besides Ecclesiastes is my favorite book. Actually. I mean, it's a, there's that passage in Lamentations about God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your mm-hmm. faithfulness. Yeah. That's Lamentations 3, 23. Right. So verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right. But listen to the verses leading up to it. So let's just start in verse one. I am the one who has seen God, who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone, he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has led me off my way and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a mark for his arrow. He shot into my vitals the arrows of his quiver. I have become, I have become the laughingstock of all my people the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So much to say, right? And much that shouldn't be said. We've grown up in churches that cannot acknowledge anything before the great is your faithfulness. Yeah. We're, we've grown up in churches, we've been shaped by spirituality that is always talking about the morning, but doesn't ever want to live in the night that precedes that morning. Your mercies are new every morning. Yes. You know why they have to be? Because every night is like this, or at least can be like this. Mm -hmm. And Jeremiah, now, of course, what he's learning, what he's in the process of coming to be able to name, is that this torturous pain he's in is not God's doing in the way that he feared it was. So all of these things that he's saying of God, I mean, he's describing a torture scene. Yeah. You hold me in darkness, in chains. You're starving me. You're you're beating me. You're mocking me. I mean, that's that's a scene of torture. God doesn't torture. But for those of us who are sickened with the lies of the enemy, the process of healing can feel torturous. And the only way in which we can kind of come aware of what God is actually doing versus what we're afraid God is doing 
is to have the kind of audacity to say truthfully what it is it seems we're experiencing. This, I mean, this, this kind of ability to bring to speech what he thinks he's experiencing is what enables him to get to the realization, this isn't God, or whatever it is that God is doing that feels torturous, is in fact the faithfulness of God to me. God is not, I mean, this, this is not the talk of, of someone who's been abused justifying their abuser. Right. This is someone who's been graced even in the midst of their suffering in such a way that as they talk about their suffering, they begin to find a way to name the difference between what they've suffered and what God was doing in that suffering. Mm. And this is, this is why I think God asked the question, is my word not like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces? Because the answer to that question is, yes, of course it is. You burn away everything that's false. You shatter every lie and every idol. But not the way we would burn and not the way that we would break. Like you, you don't, God doesn't burn us up the way that we would burn one another up and do. God's, God's hammer is different from the devil. Mm, yeah. Right. Different from the hammers that we use. And so what this lead, where this leaves me imaginatively, and I'll give you the last word because we're at an hour now, but when I read that line, wheat or, or straw, wheat, fire, hammer, rock, pieces, I'm, I immediately think about Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. Hmm. That here you've got wheat, You've got a whole bunch of people, thousands of people, where you've got the wheat and the straw growing together. You've got bread, wheat in that sense. You've got the fire of his word, and then he breaks it. And when you think about you know his word about if, if, if any of you being evil and your son asks for bread, would you give him a stone? Well, what Jesus is able to do is strike the stone and make it bread and then break the bread into pieces for all of us. Yeah. That his hammer, when it strikes the rock, makes bread that feeds thousands and with, you know, endless pieces left over. I I think the good news is not only that he shatters the idol, it's that he puts us together in that shattering. And that we don't have to have that all figured out at once. Like Jeremiah, we can grapple our way toward that. Like we can groan and fit our way toward that until, Mm. until we see that light. Okay. You get the last word. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Not after that, man. My only word is amen. Gracious. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm still angry, but I, I want to go back to where we were an hour ago. But, I mean, I, I, I remain so confident that we can trust, we can trust God's anger. I don't, I don't want anybody trusting mine, but I, I don't want anybody having to trust mine. But I, I mean, God's judgment is good and we don't, we need to fear everything but the judgment of God and we desperately, desperately, desperately need God's judgment to come against our false prophecies and, and starting with ours, yours and mine, like the ways in which we're feeding people's fantasies, like let those be the first to be shattered, right? Mm-hmm. And and not to not to fear that shattering. But I said it was the last thing I was going to say, but I, I, I am haunted by this point in Jeremiah where he says they prophesied deceit they prophesied the deceit of their own heart they plan to make my people forget so what he's what he's saying here is that false prophets they never they never know they're false prophets they have plans they keep secret from themselves so they don't know that their goal is to make you forget God because they're talking about God all the time. Right. 
but the deceitfulness of their own heart is what comes up. Not, not the deceit that they imagine. I mean, we're not really that at risk. Ultimately, we're not that at risk from people who are out-and-out out charlatans, people who, who are lying and know they're lying. Like we're, we're at risk from people who are lying and think they're telling the truth and think they're the only people telling the truth. Right. And that's, that's why this moment is so terrifying right now, is that the people who are loudest are quite clearly sincere. Mm-hmm. But God's word is fire and God's word is hammer. And that's, that's our hope right now, is that there is a, there is a coming... That word is already being spoken, and the consuming and the breaking are already starting. And I guess thinking back to our conversation this last week about Maximus, this is why for him the fear of the Lord is so necessarily connected to purity, purity of heart. Yes, it it, it is what makes pure. Right. And makes you know makes wise the simple, enlightens the eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what the fear of the Lord does, and and we need the fear of the Lord not to bring the unruly back into line, but to break the arrogance of the people who are making the rules and enforcing them. Yeah, that, that's what we need, and or who at least are aspiring, fantasizing about making the rules and enforcing them. Mm-hmm. And that, that enables us to imagine, you know, with, with Martin Luther King, it enables us to imagine a Holy Spirit future. But, but there is no imagining until the fantasies have been shattered. In fact, the shattering of the fantasies is, the, is inseparable from the imagining of the, the just future. Mm-hmm. There's a lot here, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about Hebrews 11 hardly I at know. all. The... No. So may- maybe we should say this about the, you know, what Hebrews talks about Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, right? That. that we do need to keep in mind here that this is as hard as this moment is, as difficult as it is, as desperately as we need the judgment of God. Everything is always for the joy, right? That that that's the goal here is not simply the shattering of idols. It's not the breaking apart of households or the exposing of false prophets. The goal here is the reconciliation of all reconciliation of all things around the table of the Lord. And mm-hmm. that is coming to pass. That is coming to pass. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for letting me rave and rage and hopefully this has been helpful for somebody. Yeah, man. Well, it is for me. I'm always grateful. And you got to see this incredible book. I hope everybody will find their own copy. Jeremiah, The World, The Wound of God by Daniel Berrigan. Check it out. All right. Thanks, man. Have a good night. Yeah.